When was the last time someone forgave you for something? Or when was the last time you offered forgiveness to someone else? I don't mean the superficial kind, but I mean a time that you really wronged someone and that feeling you had inside, knowing you didn't do the right thing. Maybe you were hot-tempered and lashed out. Maybe you told a lie that was discovered, and there was unrest in you until the moment you were forgiven. And at that moment, you experienced relief and peace. Well, forgiveness is the theme of today's sermon. As we go through Mark's gospel, we come to the opening of chapter 2, in which Jesus explicitly and dramatically forgives a man. We've been slowly making our way through Mark's gospel, which is the shortest of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was also the earliest one and likely a a major source for Matthew and Luke. It's also the most vivid depiction of Jesus's life. The word gospel has become a genre of its own almost like a summary of the life and ministry of Jesus. But it's also a word that we use as Christians to summarize the Christian faith, to summarize the message of salvation. Good news is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through his son Jesus, that he calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in his life and death and resurrection. Each of us has sinned against God, earning for ourselves the just punishment, which is death and hell. But in love, God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect, obedient life we should have lived. And he died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserved. He rose bodily three days later and ascended to the right hand of God, freely offering eternal life and blessedness to anyone who turns from their sins and trusts wholly in Christ for salvation. That's the gospel. That's the message of good news. It is a message of forgiveness. And so Mark opens up his book in the very beginning by stating that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news that is his very... very much the theme of identity of who Jesus is. He dramatically appears during a revival held by John the Baptist. And when he's baptized by him, the heavens split open and God proclaims, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he begins preaching in all the synagogues, going about exercising, exercising demons, healing many people along the way. And these miraculous events draw large crowds following him everywhere he goes. Well, today we hone in on a single event, a single healing, through which Jesus makes one very important point, that he came to forgive sins. That was a point that would not be received favorably by all. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses today. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. 
It says this. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It's not every week that the author of the book makes the main point as clear as this week, but uh, we are fortunate that Mark makes it very clear in the words of Jesus by telling us the main idea is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. It's something we take for granted today, something assumed by many and perhaps even expected of God, even by those who are not religious. They assume it's owed to them. But friends, there is much for us to learn about the forgiveness of God by looking at these verses. So let's dive in and examine a few of the main characters of this story. First, look with me at the faith of the five. Point one, the faith of the five. And I say the faith of the five because Jesus sees in verse verse five, he sees their faith, plural, Now, we don't know how long it had been since Jesus had left Capernaum or since he had taught in the synagogues. We only know that he could no longer enter towns openly. He had to go off to desolate places because so many crowds drew to him for his miracles. So he made his way to other cities to continue preaching. And Mark only tells us it's after some days that he returns. So however long those some days were, it was long enough for the crowds at least to die down, but not quite long enough for people to forget who Jesus was. So he re-enters, and as he returns, quickly word spreads that Jesus is home. He's back. Jesus is back. The guy who cast out demons, who healed the man of leprosy, the guy I was telling you, taught with authority in in the synagogue. You can imagine just the hustle and bustle around the town as people would have jumped at the opportunity to hear him not knowing when he would leave next. So reports go out that he's home, and we don't know if that means it's Jesus' home or Peter's home, but he's back at a house, and people show up. So many that they're packed through the door, and you can't even get in. 
Well, another day with Jesus might not come, so people were desperate to see him. In this particular instance, the crowd didn't gather around miracles, from what we could tell, or any kind of uh, battle with demonic forces. This time, it says Jesus was teaching. He was preaching the word. And most likely, what we learn from chapter 1, verse 15, is that he's teaching about the kingdom of God, how it has arrived with his arrival, how he calls men to repent and believe in him. That's his primary mission. So here he continues it, and people are desperate to listen, so desperate that drastic measures are taken. And that's where the five come in. The first obstacle they would have had to overcome is simply getting to Jesus, which would have been much easier if they didn't have a lame friend to bring along. They wouldn't be able to just run directly to him individually. Instead, they had to carry another, which uh, even with four people is not easy. It doesn't tell us how far they had to come to get to Jesus, but it doesn't take long for you to tire out when you're carrying another person. So they made it to Jesus, but they were slow. They didn't get there first, and the text tells us there was no room. And at that point, that might be the time where I, you know, if I see a large crowd, I'm more likely to, maybe I'll try to get in and see what's going on. But if no one wants to trade places, you know, then I'll probably shrug and say, well, I'll just wait for the line to die down. But that's not what these men did. They took some drastic measures. And, you know, you don't just begin by deciding to remove someone's roof. So first, about these houses, you should know most houses during that time were small one-story houses. Uh, They were square. Uh, They may not have had windows. And they most likely had staircases on the outside of the house going up to the roof. Uh, they they uh, used the roof as an additional area of space to work and to sleep, sometimes to have parties. And they were constructed in a way in which there were support beams across the top. And across the support beams were branches and thickets and reeds. And then on top of that, they would pack all kinds of soil and mud, and they would bring these big, heavy rollers and roll them across to pack it down nice and tight so that it could support someone's weight so that it would block out the water. So the roofs themselves would have been very sturdy. In fact, sometimes grass even grew up from the top of them. So these five men show up. They can't get in the house. They decide to take the stairs and begin digging, literally digging a hole in the roof, large enough for a person to fit through. Now, our ESV translation says that they just removed the roof which makes it sound like they just lifted up a board and popped down in. But that wasn't the case. A, literal, a better translation, more literally, would be unroofing the roof or digging out the roof. Well, we don't really talk like that. Uh, so the, the translation they use is a little easier for us to understand in English. But it means that they would have had to break into what would be like hard-packed soil, like digging into the earth. And they would have had to dig about two feet to get through it completely. So they overcame the distance, getting to Jesus. They were blocked out by the crowd, and they took matters into their own hands. They decided, whatever it would cost them, that it would be worth digging through the roof. There probably would have been a little bit of embarrassment to face as well. You know, just imagine being inside the room yourself, 
uh, on, a, on an evening like that, jam-packed, shoulder to shoulder with everyone else, like a, a New York subway. Probably would have been hot and sweaty because of the number of people in the room. But you're one of the lucky ones because you got there early and you can hear Jesus. And uh, you're doing the best you can to listen when you start to feel little bits and pieces of, of crumbs and dirt on top of your head. And then you notice other people start to feel the same way and begin murmuring. And then you look up and you get dust in your eyes because the dirt clumps begin to get larger and larger. And then suddenly the light comes through the ceiling and you see other people on the other side. And the murmuring gets louder and people are probably wondering, what are you guys doing up there? You're interrupting. Stop it. You're ruining the house. Wait your turn. Then the hole's blocked and you think that they've listened. And then suddenly you realize it's like a platform coming down on top of you. And you realize it's a bed. And there's a person on the bed. And because the room is full, there probably would have had to been shoving and pushing to make room for it to come down. And that's when Jesus sees the man and his four friends. So there are a few things that we can admire. First, just looking at these characters, what they went through to get to Jesus. I can't help but wonder whether we are willing to make great efforts like these to go to Jesus. Are you willing to sacrifice your time and energy and perhaps even reputation to go to Jesus. Husbands and wives, are you willing to allow yourself to be inconvenienced in order to help your spouse grow in Christ and spend time with God? Maybe you're here today and you're interested in Christianity, but you haven't really made a real effort to get to know Jesus. Friend, if that's you here today, That's not the kind of faith that Jesus sees. You're on the outside of the crowd. You need to be willing to overcome whatever obstacles are in between you and Jesus in your life. Forgiveness of your sins can be yours too, just like it was for this paralyzed man. You know, crowds are an interesting character in and of themselves throughout the book of Mark. Anytime they're mentioned, they're almost always blocking the people with actual faith trying to get to Jesus. Keep that in mind down the road. Well, Mark doesn't tell us what their motives are in coming to Jesus. It was at least at the hope of getting healed, and it could uh, could not have been less than that, rather. During those times, people were quicker to assume that sickness and deformities or defects were actually closer, more closely related to sin than we would assume today. And there is a sense in which all deformity and corruption is a result of fallen human nature, of the sin of Adam and Eve. But the Bible also teaches that one's state of well-being may not be related to sin at all. One example of this is Jesus in John 9, verse 3, when uh, they asked Jesus why the man was born blind. Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And he says that it's neither but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, either way, for the paralytic or the four friends, they heard of Jesus. Maybe one of them witnessed him the last time he was in town, and they made every possible effort to come to him. 
And there's a sense of urgency in their efforts to get to Jesus. And it's this kind of urgent and desperate action that Jesus recognizes as faith. And so he forgives the man. There are a few more things we can learn from these five men. First, getting to Jesus is not always easy. Sometimes coming to Jesus is really difficult. And we should remember that for some people, getting to Jesus is harder than for others. So we should be patient in prayer, and we should be persistent in evangelism. We also may need to think of creative ways to reach people with the gospel. That may mean going out of our way, like joining a local association in our neighborhood to get to know our neighbors, inviting a coworker over for dinner to share Jesus with them, or using your free lunch hour to go through a book with a friend. Remember the four men who carried their friend out of love for him, that he would experience healing. I think we can apply this concept of creativity to our own private devotions as well. That may mean listening to the Bible on your commute to work or doing something incredibly radical like going to a coffee shop and leaving your phone at home and only bringing your Bible to read. Well, Jesus shows compassion on the man and addresses him as son. It's the same word we use for child. And it's only used by Jesus one other time in the gospel to address a non-family member. He uses it towards his disciples. It's an endearing term, one of care, one usually made by an authority figure to a subordinate. I wonder if reading this story, you thought it was maybe a little awkward that Jesus said your sins are forgiven. Perhaps even a little inappropriate for the situation. I mean, sure, heal the guy with leprosy, but the paralyzed guy comes and he says, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus isn't ignoring his paralysis. It seems like Jesus is ignoring his real need, his crippled body, but it's consistent with Jesus' mission, like we talked about last week. Jesus forgave his sins because eternal standing before God is far more important than his body that would likely only live less than 60 years. Jesus saw the greater need for healing inside the man. Remember what Jesus said during his Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. How tragic would it have been for Jesus to heal this man's body, but for him to go on in life unforgiven. Now, I'm not saying physical needs are not important. They very much are. But, brothers and sisters, we need to keep eternity at the forefront of our minds. We need to think of reaching the world for the kingdom of God. We want to be a church that prioritizes what Jesus prioritized. So we should be sure our missionaries and ministries that we support prioritize the same message of salvation through faith in Christ as paramount while not neglecting physical needs. And we need to remember that eternity hangs in the balance. Forgiveness is the greatest need. Well, the story continues to develop, and it takes an interesting turn at this point. Jesus forgives the man, but it turns out he wasn't the only paralytic in the room. 
there were others of a different kind. There was the man physically paralyzed, and there were those standing by who were spiritually paralyzed. And Mark tells us about the doubt of the scribes. That's point two, the doubt of the scribes. Remember that the scribes were experts, teachers of the law in that day. They were leaders of the synagogue and provided religious instruction and worship. And they appear to be listening to Jesus as they should be in the front row. And they seem to be wrestling with whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. So far, there's been no tension in Mark's gospel between Jesus and the Pharisees until this moment. Jesus says something that makes their ears perk up, and they question in their hearts. Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark tells us that the scribe said three things. Verse 7, why does he speak like this? It's a skeptical remark. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? As if he's trying to reason how it could be true what Jesus is saying. Well, what's so wrong about someone telling someone else their sins are forgiven? Generally, it's a good thing to forgive someone who has wronged you. But that's just it. Jesus here acts as though he is the one who's been wronged. He's the one who's been sinned against. But sin is primarily an act of rebellion against God, our creator. That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Not against Uriah, who he murdered after taking his wife for himself. God is the one to whom all men are held accountable. And so any and every sin is first and foremost a sin against God, since it's his law and his morals that we break. So brothers and sisters, if you have wronged someone recently, you need to go before the Lord to confess your sins first, and then go to the person that you've wronged and ask for forgiveness. If you've been wronged by someone, let me just take the time to remind you that we as Christians have no right to withhold forgiveness from others because Christ did not hold our faults against us. But by Jesus telling the man that his sins are forgiven, is once again he's claiming to know something that only God can know, and to do something that only God can do. Jesus basically says, God forgives you, which is something no mere man can say. Not even the high priest or God's prophets spoke this way. But Jesus doesn't just rehearse God's love for the man. He actually tells him he's pardoned. And you can see the development of the scribe's logic as he reasons through this. First, he's skeptical, then he becomes critical. He's blaspheming, he says in his heart. And you know what? If Jesus was a mere man, he's right. If he was not the Son of God, then he would be blaspheming. The scribe is trying to wrestle with the fact that God is one. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord, the Lord, is one. And only God can forgive sins. Therefore, for someone else to forgive on God's behalf is to call oneself God. It's to say your actions are God's actions. Blasphemy was a criminal offense in the Old Testament. It was uh, punishable by death. And not just any death, but a death by stoning. It's not something that would be taken lightly, and it would have been something clearly taught about in Jewish families growing up. 
Well, after becoming critical of Jesus, the scribe moves on to accusation. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's saying he's a fraud. Well, that's the ultimate response to Jesus, forgiving the paralyzed man. And again, his logic is right. Even Jesus' critics understood Jesus better than some people do today. For those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, they're simply ignoring what Jesus said in the Bible. Those opposed to Jesus who listened to him speak understood exactly what he was doing. Another clear example of this is in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 33, when Jesus states, I and the Father are one, and the Jews around him pick up stones to stone him right there on the spot. And Jesus says, which of the many great acts of God he was going to, what he has done that they would stone him for? And you know what their response is? They say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, that's exactly what he's doing here. By forgiving the man, he makes himself to be God. Whatever Jesus had taught them up to that point, they must not have been listening very closely because they failed to realize that he wasn't a mere man claiming to be God. He himself is God, the Son incarnate, the Word made flesh, the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. There's a stark contrast between the faith of the five and the doubt of the scribes. That leads me to point three. And this is the main crux of the passage, the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Remember that none of these things that the scribes question are said out loud. They are in their thoughts, in their hearts. And Jesus, perceiving what's in their hearts, calls them out. The other people observing, probably just wondering what's going on. Which I'm sure caught them off guard. He had not confronted them yet. But from this event on, there would be contention between him and the Pharisees. But Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. And yes, from this we can clearly see that Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows what true faith and what false faith is. He knows exactly the questions we ask in our hearts. He knows when we become skeptics and critics and accusers. So in this story, are you more like the faithful five or the doubtful scribes? Are you quick to question God's word and applying it to your life? Or do you cling to it as more valuable than life itself? By forgiving the man, Jesus makes himself to be God by acting as the offended party But he's also claiming to know all the man's sins. I don't know if you thought about that. You have to know what someone's sins are to forgive them of them. And he does. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows every offense we've ever caused and ever will. And he still offers full pardon if we repent of our sin and trust in him. So what does Jesus do when he perceives the thoughts of the scribes? He addresses them. And he asks why they question these things. He essentially asks, why do you doubt that I can forgive this man's sins? And he goes even further 
to make his point. Look at verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, this is kind of confusing, but just think for yourself for a moment in your own head. Which do you think is easier? To tell someone their sins are forgiven or to tell a paralyzed man to rise, take up your bed, and walk? I think most of us would probably easily say it's much easier to tell someone their sins are forgiven. Why is that? Well, because there's no way to prove it, for one. There's no way to disprove it. You can't see it. Whereas if you find a lame beggar and you go up to him and you say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, nothing's going to happen. You're going to look a little bit ridiculous, and you would also be a huge jerk. Both of these things are impossible, by the way. Now, you know, there's another instance of Jesus making a similar statement in Mark chapter 10. Jesus encounters a rich man who eagerly wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. And uh, Jesus asks, he goes through a number of the Ten Commandments, asking if he's obeyed them, and he says he's done all these things ever since his youth. And then Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and give the money to the poor and to follow him. And the rich man goes away sorrowful because he can't part with his wealth. But do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after that? Turn over to Mark 10. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, there's that word, there's the other time he uses it in the gospel. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at them and said, oh, let's, start at, let's stop at verse 26. Oh, and, and 27. Then Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See what he's doing? Instead of asking which one is easier, he's just telling them. He tells them that it's much harder to enter the kingdom of God. And that's when you hear their response. It's astonishment. Turn back to Mark chapter 2. In this particular case, Jesus had already done the harder thing, which was to forgive the man. But in order to demonstrate his point, he performed a miracle to communicate what was possible for God. So he tells the paralytic man to get up. Both are impossible for man, but not with God. So he does what the scribes would have perceived as the more difficult thing to show them that he has the authority. All things are possible for God. He even states his point while he does it. Verse 10 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He doesn't just have the ability, but the authority. It's like Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, oh, you think that was something? Watch this. And what a great day for the paralytic to come to Jesus on a day he decides to prove his point to the Pharisees. He gets up miraculously, praise goes to God, because no one had, any, had ever seen anything like this before. Well, even though the scribes doubt Jesus' ability and therefore his authority, his act of healing is seen by the rest of the crowd as nothing other than the act of God, and they glorify him for it. His statement in verse 10 is a lot like the time he raised Lazarus from the grave. Before he does it, he prays to God and says, I know you hear my prayers, but I say these things that they would believe you sent me. It's the same purpose in mind here that everyone around would know that Jesus is God and has the authority to forgive sins, to usher in the kingdom of heaven. So, friend, are you prone to question whether or not Jesus could actually forgive your sins? Know that he can. And if you've put your trust in him, he already has. If you're prone to doubt your salvation, look at the healed paralytic and know that you have been healed in a much more meaningful way than even him. Brothers and sisters, our membership directory, I have it right here. It's full of people whose faith Jesus saw, and he said to them, your sins are forgiven. It's an amazing thing what God has done for us through Christ. So friend, who or what needs forgiving? All people need forgiving. All people. It's the greatest need in the world. It's the need that only Jesus can give and provide. Because while God is holy and will judge those who are guilty, he is not unwilling to forgive anyone of their sins, no matter how sinful they may be, if they repent and turn to Christ. So we must be a faithful people to proclaim this message to those around us. And we should live lives of those who have been forgiven, not in anxious unrest, but in joyful peace. Do you live your life like that? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we give you praise this morning because you gave your Son the authority to forgive sins, without which each of us would be deserving of your full punishment. But in love, you sent your Son for us. You didn't send us another prophet. You didn't give us another law. You yourself came to us. You provided the sacrifice needed in Christ. And by his stripes, we are healed. Help us not to take forgiveness for granted. 
Help us by your grace to be a people that preach forgiveness to the world. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen.